You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the ProSound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is supported by Audix. Check out their new line of Pro Studio headphones and the A131 and A133 large diaphragm studio condenser microphones at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath has asked us to read this. Have you noticed that all good things come in threes? XLR, AES, meat, cheese, and tortillas, Michael Lawrence, Chris Leonard, and Kyle Chernside, and now the Allen and Heath AHM Matrix family, AHM 64, AHM 32, and AHM 16. 96 kilohertz FPGA-powered sonic powerhouses for projects of all sizes. Who says matrices have to be boring? Not us. We've never said that. Kyle said it once, but we proved him wrong. Check them out today. Welcome to the Signal to Noise podcast. My name is Kyle Chernside. We're glad to have you back with us or joining us for the first time, whichever it is. We are glad that you are here. Uh, Tonight, I'm joined, of course, by Chris Leonard and Sam Boone. Um, How are you guys doing? Good. Solid. Solid. Everything, everything's starting to move real fast, right? I mean, oh yeah. It's a, it's approaching, yeah. and when we say it, we mean events. They're all getting uh, piled up right now. So it's, it's cool to seeing everybody get back to work. A lot of, a lot of things are being posted back in our Discord and Facebook groups. If you're not a part of it, please get into it. A um, lot of good people to get to know there. A lot of good. Uh, content being posted and shared amongst everybody. So get get it going. I, I do want to mention this before we get started. Um, the 16th Annual Central Region Audio Studio uh, Student Summit, which is the largest uh, AES student-ran summit in the world, is happening April 1st through the 3rd this year at Webster University. They're doing virtual, and um, they're also doing in person this year first time back in person in like two years uh this is where i met uh one michael lawrence maybe you've heard of him have you, have you guys heard of him uh a few times yeah once or twice so go to crass2022.eventsaes.org and you guys can sign up they got a cheap sign up students get a big discount if you're having issues maybe paying for it or maybe trying to get do the thing they'll work with you send them an email a lot of great guests uh one of our our guests who's had all of us on now mr uh daniel keller maybe you've heard of him as well is is one of the people there um who else Mark Rubel is usually there. I don't think he's going to be there next year, which was a phenomenal podcast. I hope you guys listen to that one. Um, I don't know. What are you guys up to? I'm just sitting here ch- shit talking now. <laughs> oh, man, we're just, yeah, we're trucking along. Live events are coming back. It's, uh, it's exciting stuff for sure. How are you moving along, Sam? You enjoying life? You doing the thing? It's been good. It's uh, a lot's been going on, but you know, can't complain, right? It's uh, really, really great to stay busy. You know, and uh, it's just learn a lot, moving things quickly. Are you adapting to the weather there? That's what I want to know. Man, I miss the South. <laughs> like, not not quite. I'm doing better than I thought I would do, and I'm proud of myself for that. I'm pretty good as long as it's like 40 or above. Um, 
once we hit the 30s up here, I'm out. Like, no, mm-mm. uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult crossover, man. For those who are, like, used to being in that thing, um, it, it's a difficult crossover. Joining us tonight, a lucky man. He's sitting in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, Rick and I go back to my Midas days when I was doing the console stuff and uh, we got to talking and I was super interested in his background. This man has done a little bit of everything in the audio aspect of the music business. Um, we got talking a couple weeks ago. I saw that he posted this thing about this uh, master mix and he had this going on when I was out there and then obviously COVID slowed it down, but um, it's basically his own school and from broadcast to recording to live engineering, I'm sure he has a way to like circle all of it around to apply it to one common theme of audio production. Uh, I got to mix Bell Biv DeVoe with him. I don't know how cool that is for you guys, but um, when I went to get paid after the show, he was like, yeah, man, just go hit up the tour manager or whatever. And I, I, we were at Mandalay Bay by the pool doing a private party. And I walked up to the dressing room and CM came out and he on the sketch, like did the thing where he shakes your hand, but the money's in the hand thing. And I was like, yeah, that boy, that boy is poison. You know? But ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Rick camp. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, and Rick and I go back as well. Uh, in fact, 16 years ago, we, we toured together at least once. Quite possibly my first show with Marilyn Sound, we're putting two and two together. Uh, that Rick was there with Gladys Knight and Smokey Robinson. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to reconnect as well. Yep. Your not- artist list is crazy. Yes. So we're going we're gonna to start at the bottom because <laughs> we got we got to start at the bottom. How many episodes is this going to be to get through? Uh, it's easier to basically mention all the artists he hasn't worked for than the artists he has worked for. I think that's how this it is. Work. And we can we can totally fan this one up because I'm sure each of them have their own little aspect because I, I think Rick went through a change in music as well from yeah. bands to tracks and bands to tracks to to sitting at a place doing a show over and over to touring to working with them in the studio so um like how did you get your start in audio um i actually started out as a trumpet player i came Brilliant. out of high I was school too. <laughs> oh were you okay didn't know that um, real bad real bad <laughs> <laughs> that's why you didn't know that <laughs> exactly <laughs> And, you know, when I graduated from high school, I went to Berkeley College of Music. And this was 1980. And it was I only went there for one year because when I got there, 1980, that's when the DX7 came out. Ooh. And and all of the horn bands faded into the sunset. <laughs> the gang, Earth, Wind and Fire, Tower of Power, all my favorite bands just faded right into the sunset. So I had always, you know, playing in the local bands, I'd always... You know, the, the audio thing came easy to me. I never read any books. You know, I was always able to get a good sound for the local bands. So I decided to get real serious about it if I was going to stay in music. You know, and actually when I was at Berkeley, I went to school with Branford Marsalis. What? And Branford was at Berkeley at the time. A whole lot of people, Cindy, 
um, Blackman that plays drums and is married to Santana. She was there. Uh, Layla Hathaway was there. I mean, it was all kind of people there when I was there. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, Winton would come from Juilliard because he was going to Juilliard at the time. He would come and do seminars at Berkeley and he could smoke all the teachers. I was like, well, okay, I'm good. But I ain't <laughs> that good. <laughs> I think I need to change professions. That's how I got in audio. And and they had a program there too. They were doing uh, studio stuff, right? They were just building the very first studio. When I left, it wasn't even finished. So yep. basically from doing local shows and kind of getting your hands on things here and there, you you just built your way up. Um, who was your first artist that you actually started working for exclusively? Um, live, it was The Whispers. But before then, I had done what they call the Miller Sound Express. Um, there was a promoter there in town, the Santangelo family. And uh, they promoted the Cool Jazz Festivals. I don't know if you guys remember Cool Jazz Festivals. Um, they're still doing them to this day. I think it's like 50, 60 years going strong. But they, it would be in Cincinnati, it would be in San Francisco, uh, San Diego, and then the Hampton Jazz Festival down in Hampton, Virginia. They did all of those. Well, they, uh, every summer they would do what they called the Miller Sound Express tour, which was a big semi that opened up into a stage and, and they'd have all those groups, Midnight Stars, Zap, you name it, all the R&B groups, and they would play for free in the parks all over the country, Chicago, New York, you name it. And so I, I did that tour one year. And then after that, I um, met some of the people with the Whispers uh, when I was mixing a local band that opened for them. And uh, you know how the story goes. Somebody didn't show up and I got a call. It was like, Rick, can you get on a plane now? And the rest was history. I ended up working with them for 12 years. Wow. That's awesome. I, I, I know I did some stuff around here. I don't know if I did a cool one. I did a Benson and Hedges thing mm -hmm. uh, that came through St. Louis, which was really cool because they had... Um, uh, it was a real weird mix, like Sir Mix a lot, um, the Ohio players. Um, wow. it, one was cool, and then no, one was Vincent and Hedges, and then one was something else. But it was a one of those park stage things, mm -hmm. and it was awesome. Like they don't do that stuff no more. That that's like unheard of. That you're just gonna have a free concert in the park with some, you know, really big names. Yeah, yeah. headliners. Yeah, no, they don't do that no more. So uh, a lot of your early career was um, at the end of the stick that I prefer <laughs> or like sure. as a monitor engineer. So talk about um, uh, it. Was that it? Did you stumble into that? Was that a necessity? And you were there for a minute. So did you enjoy that? What was that like being down at monitors? You know, something that was that was a big learning experience. And I'm glad that I actually did that. And with my school, I actually tell the kids, you need to start at monitors first. You know, you need to know what's going on on that stage before you go out the front of house. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I mixed front of house for one gig for the Whispers because this guy couldn't make it. And then I moved to monitors because the, the original guy came back. And I, I must have did monitors for him for at least five years or so before I actually moved to front of house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely the place to start. 
<laughs> monitors makes you quick and it makes you listen differently. Oh uh, yeah. I, and I think dealing with the artist, you learn different aspects than you do being on this island, you know, 50, 75, how many feet away from the stage? Like you, uh, you definitely learn differently. Um, right. I like the way you explained it because I don't think it's, it's like this weird rite of passage that no one talks about. You start out at monitors, you end up at front of house in this day and age. That's not necessarily the case, you know, um, you might be really good at RF. So you're getting a monitor gig, or you might be really good at a broadcast mix. So you might get the front of house gig or a studio mix. Mm -hmm. So that rite of passage frequencies, like obviously you were working with wedges and very loud, big bands. Right. Is that one of the things that you honed in on from monitor world? Oh yeah, absolutely. You got to learn your frequencies. You got to troubleshoot too at monitor world. You got to troubleshoot quick at monitor world. And that's something that I kind of harp on too. I tell people, anybody can mix if everything's working right. Everybody can mix <laughs> and, and, and get out, you know, get up what they want to hear. This when things yeah, ain't that, working right, that's yeah. what you get paid for. <laughs> the worst sight at Monitor World is when you look out in front of a house and dudes standing there like this while you're running across stage trying to fix stuff. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. oh man, I really want to be out there. That guy is having fun. <laughs> He's watching me fail. <laughs> did, um, did, so did anyone teach you uh, how to do monitors or was it just all trial by fire? Did you have a mentor in the Monitor World at all? I did. Um, during that Miller Sound Express thing, the promoter of the cool festival, his son had a sound company. And it was just a regional company. His name was Mark Santangelo. And uh, he put me on one. It was two trucks. He put me on one of the trucks with a guy named Vernon Llewellyn. And I learned a, a whole lot of stuff from Vernon. He, he was actually a genius. Actually, Claire tried to hire him away from his own thing to build boxes for him. They never got him, but yeah, this, <laughs> I learned a lot of stuff. Well, you know, worth a shot, I guess. Um, I think it's really interesting, like talking about starting in monitors and that process of troubleshooting. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting that like a lot of companies, right, you typically start as a monitor tech mm -hmm. is what I've noticed. And I think that might be changing some, but I mean, my understanding is like, even the way Claire runs things, right? Like going through their internship, like you start as fly tech and monitor tech, like you do that patch stage, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did you learn to troubleshoot apart from just doing it? Like, how did you learn to think about troubleshooting? Cause I've heard like various schools of thought. Well, you gotta know the signal flow. Right. And being in the monitor in monitor world, you learn signal flow. You learn right. where when that signal hits the splitter, where does it go? And then you learn how to backtrack, you know, uh, any troubles. Sure. So when when, I, when was your transition back to uh, back to front of house? Um, what was when was there was there a moment where it was that kind of flipped the switch there? Um. Yeah, I found out that I really didn't have the right temperament to be a monitor engineer. <laughs> That's a good discussion. It really is. Like sometimes we we gloss over things, but it, having it, you gotta you gotta be cool, calm, and collected, man. You really do at Monitor World, and 
fr- standing at front of house and watching that person work on stage troubleshooting, you can tell if they're going to make it as a monitor person or not is, it, it, is by the way that you react to artists, weird mm-hmm. things that you're teching other bands like it, it, the tech part was easy for me it's the the interaction with 12 different people on stage and everybody's got a different different vibe yeah yeah that that's what sent me to front of house <laughs> <laughs> i only have to listen to one or two people out there <laughs> and an occasional heckler that you know want to be a backseat mixer <laughs> Uh, b- back maybe a little bit earlier in your career, was there a point where, all right, so you knew, all right, I got, I got to do the sound thing because the, the musician thing isn't working. Um, did you know instantly that the audio path was going to work or was there a moment where that clicked? I mean, or just you know, how, how, how was that, that transition? That's interesting. I guess I knew immediately that that's what I was supposed to do. Because like I said, I never took a class. It just kind of came natural to me on how to figure out how to work all the gear. You know, um, I, I learned, like I said, from Mark Santangelo, Mark had his father had plenty of money. I mean, you know, he was the biggest promoter in the, in the game at, the, at that point. And Mark had all the latest gear. He never knew how to work it right off the bat. He, he just had it and he'd sit there and play with it for a month or two. And, and then he figured out how to work it. And then he'd bring it out on his gigs. So I got a chance to, to, to learn a lot of stuff just by playing with the gear that he had. Wasn't that hard. So I've got to ask, right? You, you've done, you've done monitors, you've done front of house, you've done a bunch of live stuff. You've also done some studio stuff. Has one side informed the other? How does one side do what now? Has one side, like working in a studio, working with artists that way, does that, has that kind of changed or shaped your workflow or how you think about, you know, why you do what you do or even your methodology? Um, so the studio thing, you have to be way more exact than live. You can get away with a lot of things live that you can't get away with in the studio. So that actually made my live mixing a lot better because now I get my, my whole frequency hearing thing was way better, especially when it came to mixing vocals. Um, you know, I could tell when people were sharp or flat in a live show and I could just pull them down and blend them in and do whatever I had to do. So yeah, the studio, the studio thing actually made me sharper live. I think the, I think it's like the critical listening thing. You, you listen to things differently in a live situation than you do in a studio and the tedious thought pattern is different. And mm-hmm. I think that's why some, like, I can't connect to the studio because Chris and I were talking about this because he was working on this album and it's sound replacement. And the the tedious job of sound replacement, I mean, it's getting easier with, with the tools that we have now, but um, that's just weird. If I don't get my snare sound in like two minutes or less, maybe even, you know, a minute, I'm over that snare. Let's go on to the hi-hat. You know what I mean? Like, um, (laughs) so the critical listening, like you said, noticing if they're sharp or flat or tempo problems or intonation problems between the instruments is, is that something that you focus on live now too? Oh yeah. I mean, it's just, it kind of all just melts together. Like I can, you know, I can hear if the bass player is out of tune 
And then I can, you know, do whatever I need to do to kind of hide it in a live situation. Um, I can tell if, you know, you got three or four background singers and one of them is singing sharp or flat. You know, I can find it, you know, I can cue it up and, and pull them down. Um, yeah, the studio thing has just made my hearing, you know, just that much better um, than just being a, a, a live engineer. You know, uh, something else I, I don't like to hear that I hear from a lot of live engineers that have never mixed in the studio. Like they'll, they'll take reverbs and they won't EQ the return of the reverb. It'll just be hollow. And I'm like, wow, you don't hear that? But unless you've worked in the studio and know that you need to EQ that return, you know, those, those kind of little things go right past the live guy. Is there difference like a uh, separation in effects in a studio versus effects live? I mean, uh, or do you do it kind of somewhere like a snare verb and then a tom verb and then possibly a vocal verb or a room verb? Uh, do you do it any differently in the studio? Um, <clears throat> no, it's just on the basic level. Yes, it's, it's just that snare verb, tom verb, vocal verb. You know, other instruments I might put delay on them to make them fatter. Um, I learned a lot of studio stuff, uh, coincidentally, by uh, from Roger, Roger and Zach. Uh, before I ever left the uh, East Coast and went to L.A., before I got the gig with the Whispers, I spent a year with uh, Zap in the studio. And not many people noticed, but Roger was an A-plus engineer. He knew all his frequencies. He'd sit, he'd sit behind whoever the engineer was and tell him just what to do. Tell him what frequencies to boost, cut, how much compression to put on, what kind of effects he wanted. He just couldn't do it all and be creative, you know, <clears throat> but he, he did it all. I think that's something weird that we don't talk about as well as like um, the artist or the musician articulating what they want to the engineer, whether it's in the studio or in a live situation, you, you kind of have to learn a different language to speak with them on that. And it's very cool when you have an artist like Zap or I had a couple artists that worked in the studio constantly that could actually articulate what they were looking for. Um, like you didn't have to play Miss Cleo trying to figure out what this meant in the hut, what, you know, their symbols and shapes. I think it takes a special kind of artist to articulate that. Right. Uh, I won't mention any names, but I had one <laughs> artist, a female tell me I needed, she needed more highs in her lows. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got it. <laughs> I need more trouble on my thing thing. <laughs> That's awesome. I had that one before. That was a good one. Yeah. How, about, how about the transition um, uh, when uh, playback tracks? Uh, you, you probably had to see that come in uh, for uh, when around what time was that? Maybe was there a specific act where that was like the first time you had kind of seen that model and 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 how you had to handle that from a, from a mixing perspective? You know, that's interesting. All the local bands I mixed used playback tracks. And this was back in the, you know, uh, uh, early, mid 80s. Huh. Um, I had I was mixing local bands that, you know, used tracks along with the band. So 
by the time I got to the Whispers, they used, you know, background tracks and, uh, you know, some background instrument tracks. I was already up on how to do that. And that's another thing that kind of drives me crazy. Um, I can sit and listen to, you know, somebody else's live mix and I can tell exactly what's track and what's not because most of the engineers and this, I guess this is where the studio part comes in. When they're making these background vocal stems, they're heavily processed. They got a ton of high end on them. You know, they got all kinds of effects on them. And, you know, I'm sitting there listening to this live show and I can hear those tracks is blaring, you know, above the live vocals. You know, and I tell my students, I say, look, you got to EQ those tracks. You got to take all the top end off. You got to try to make them as natural sounding as possible so you can blend them into the live vocal and nobody can tell. Um, and if possible, have the group recut the background on regular microphones, like on a 58, versus using those processed uh, uh, studio tracks. So, uh, yeah, that it's just little things that I take from the studio and I flip it into the, the live world and, you know, make it work live where you can't tell. How about the other way around? So for someone who, you know, uh, have you been able to bring elements alive that maybe the average pure studio person doesn't bring to the studio? Um, sometimes drum sounds, you know, uh, because, you know, you always got, you know, some big hall that you're in, like Constitution, <laughs> that <laughs> creates a, a gigantic drum sound, whether you want it or not. <laughs> so, you know, some of the, the tricks that I use to, you know, gate and compress and work around a big place like Constitution or, or any big arena, I can bring that into the studio. Cool, cool. All right, Kyle, uh, what about some of your fanboy questions? You have oh, a man. mile list of, uh, of names. There, there's so many. Like, and, <laughs> and that's what living in Vegas gave me the opportunity to really work with some of these artists on the way back through like some of the R&B gigs like we did the new editions we did the Belbiv DeVos like probably the ones that I want to ask about is um and, and we don't get to do this very often but we've been able to point it out a couple times is like uh the Stevie Wonders and uh how how it was working for them and his band and one that I see on the list that I was a huge fan of when I was a kid, you might not believe it, but I have the collection right over here is Madonna. <laughs> so, so those are the two that I kind of wanted to ask about was, was Madonna and Stevie wonder one, because we had another engineer on that uh, got to work with Stevie and told some glorious stories. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we've never had anybody on that work for Madonna. And uh, I think, I think she transcended, tracks as well so obviously oh, yeah. she started out as a band mm -hmm. a group with her and then turned into almost an electronic act mm -hmm. with more dance and production value and stuff like that so what are your thoughts let's start with madonna and then we'll go back to stevie wonder well you you mentioned dance that's actually how i came into madonna um a friend of mine who was the uh, programmer for Earth, Wind, and Fire that I met back in the 90s. He was Madonna's uh, 
guy. Um, and he called me one day, said, Rick, uh, she's not happy with the guy. And it was a Claire guy. Um, and they were in rehearsals at SIR in, uh, in uh, Hollywood. And uh, she wants somebody that can mix dance music, you know, club music. That's how I ended up with uh, doing Madonna. It was just a short uh, promo run for a, a dance record that had just come out. I can't even remember the name of the record. Ray of Light. It had yeah. to be Ray of Light. That okay. was like, okay, Sam's laughing at me. That is my favorite Madonna record. In, in huh. case anyone was questioning the fanboy and Kyle, you just whip that one right out there, buddy. I love, I love that album. <laughs> and I saw the year that you did it, so that's why I wanted to ask because – that's exactly she, she had Orbital produce that album, and it's not only tonal quality, but okay, so her dancing and singing at the same time, was she wearing a headset mic at the time? Yeah, I believe it was a headset mic, but it wasn't live. Yeah, that's what I figured. Man, yeah. and, and see, you were talking about tracks and mixing them in. I think there was a time and place where people would call you on that. Like people would go to shows and be like, oh man, they're lip singing. Right. But now I don't think people care as much because if you look up there and you see a four piece rock band and all of a sudden keyboards come out of nowhere, no one's going, Hey bro, they don't have a keyboard player. Like right. you used to do that, but right. now it's a thing. And we had another guest on that said, if there's a part in the tracks, that is a part in the album that is specific, like the people recognize that sound from that track, like say a Dr. Dre thing, mm -hmm. that thing needs to be in the mix, whether you see it being played or not. And I, I, I think there's people have grown, you know, I thought it was cool to call them out, but now I want to hear how the engineer puts it in the mix. And like right. you said, processed vocals, eh, bummer, because you kind of want them to pump with the live sound and, and fit in but are has there been an artist where you were like man i gotta play these tracks tonight and they just like are not happening like uh yeah <laughs> all of them <laughs> all of them you know it's, some are better than others um earth wind and fire was always pristine you know and there were so many people on stage you didn't know if there was other tracks being played mostly it was string stuff and some background stuff with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, and, and another pet peeve of mine that you just brought up is I go, I, I'm listening to the groups and the engineer is missing, they're missing the lead lines. You don't even know what the song is when it starts because you didn't hear the lead line that brought it in or whatever was leading at the time. Or in the middle of the song, especially with something like Earth, Wind, and Fire, at different points, the horns are leading. At different points, the strings are leading. At different points, then it's the you know background is leading. I, I you know I hate to hear a group and I can't hear the hook. That needs to be up front and center, you know, or else you don't know what the song is. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So along with the Stevie Wonder thing, you've worked with a bunch of amazing vocalists. Who who would you go back and do it all over again with? Because they were just like, you could just sit in front of house and listen. <laughs> oh, there's probably a few of them. Actually, Stevie, I, I actually mixed monitors for uh, the gig I did with Stevie. Um, and that was just a one-off. <clears throat> um, and he's amazing. I mean, that's, I don't even know what to say about Stevie. That's, you know, he's just crazy. He's magic. Uh, 
He's got yeah. it. Just, he's just magic. Yeah. Um, who would I listen to all that? I can listen to Maurice and Philip, you know, from Earth, Wind, and Fire. The two twins with the whispers, Walt and Scotty. They sounded just alike. They were identical twins, and they sang just alike. Now, in the studio, Scotty sang most of the leads. But not, not many people knew that, or not many people could tell them apart. But I could. You know, one's voice was just a little richer than the other one. But live, they always sang together. Um, who else? Female uh, vocal. Oh, it, you know, Beyonce. Damn. When I met when I met them, I was not a Destiny's Child fan. You know, I I'd heard the hit records. You know, the, the early ones. Um, and I got it's funny how I got the gig. I was actually doing a rehearsal at Center Staging with Brandy for a, a award show, and they loaded in next door, and this was right after nine eleven. <clears throat> And they had to finish a world tour that they had started, but, you know, it got stopped because of 9-11. And I went next door and I ran into a, a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in five or six years. He, he had just got hired as the production manager. And I said, so, uh, Norm, who's, who's mixing front of house? He said, nobody. You. <laughs> I won't tell you the whole story, but they had went through two front of house engineers before they ever got to rehearsal. Both of them quit. Damn. And so uh, I did three rehearsals with him and I was off on a, you know, 20 week world tour. <laughs> was that was that Destiny Child or just Beyonce by herself? Last Destiny's Child tour. Holy and then that shit. kind of segued me into Beyonce and Kelly and, and Michelle's solo records. Awesome. Um, but what what amazed me, though, like I said, I wasn't a Destiny's Child fan. And when I first, uh, the first gig I watched B run across the stage in Six Inch Heels, and she didn't miss a note. All her vocals were live. I was like, whoa, you might not like what this girl is singing, but she has got to be one of the baddest ones out there. I, I'll tell you one Beyonce story, and this is because I always, since I was a kid, Island Def Jam Records was my absolute, like, top in you know beastie boys run dmc fat boys slayer like <laughs> it, all that stuff so when fallout boy signed with island def jam that's when jay was running island and okay. uh, we did a show at i think was it the emerson what's that little club in the iron down in the flats of the uh, new york city i forgot i think it's the emerson theater or something like that little tiny club jay came out to the show and sat in the balcony and that's where the front of house mix position was and beyonce came and walked through and mm -hmm. i have never ever seen a female look like that like she was like stunning like her skin was like butter like mm -hmm. i couldn't stop looking at her and i was like damn jay-z's <laughs> gonna punch me right dead in the mouth but that lady was so nice and she, she jammed out the whole show and pete on stage was like Throw your diamonds in the sky if you feel the vibe, you know. And, and Jay's talking to some of uh, his friends at the table, and Beyonce turned around and smacked him in the back of the head and was like, He's talking about you right now. And Jay came <laughs> over and like it was like a moment in time that I will never forget. And I will tell that story until I perish. But like Beyonce yeah. is something special, man. You could tell when she walks in the room. Yeah. Yeah, she was extra cool. They all were real cool, but yeah, she she was extra, extra cool. 
Yeah. How was her voice to work with? Oh, like I said, she was one of the top ones that, you know, never had a problem getting her out front. Let's, uh, let's talk about uh, some of the training stuff you got going on in, in the studio. Tell us about what, uh, what you're doing there. Um, <clears throat> so I got two courses. One is live and one is studio. You know, when kids come and, you know, I kind of do a little interview session with them. Most of them want to do the studio thing. And I'm like, okay, why do you want to do studio? And if they, you know, give the wrong answer, which is, you know, I, I want to go get this, you know, gig at, you know, some big commercial studio. I'm like, it's not there. Hmm. The, it's, those, those days are gone. I mean, the, the big studios are producer driven. You know, they're the P. Diddy's, they're the, you know, those kind of guys that got their own private rooms. And if you don't know any of those guys, you're not working in. And they already have their whole crew. So, but if you're a musician and you just want to learn and know how to record your own stuff, then okay, I'm, I'm with it. And then, you know, I started telling them about the live thing. I'm saying, you know, you may never grow up to mix Madonna or Beyonce or, or, or any of those people, but there's a million gigs in the live world. You know, <clears throat> um, you can do a fixed install gig like a House of Blues type gig. Or uh, you can, you know, a lot of people don't want to go on tour. Right. Um, so, it, you know, I, I try to find out, you know, what the headspace is, what they want to do with it before I recommend, you know, which one they take. So are these, are these full-on um, group session classes or are these all one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, some group, and I'll do some one-on-ones, yeah. Uh, and do you have like a regular, uh, like a rotating schedule? I mean, is it a full on school program? Like how does, how, how does, the, how does the process work? Well, it has been working for the last two years, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was a mixture of both of them. You know, I'd have, you know, four or five students all come like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then if somebody wanted the one-on-one -on -one thing, like I had a, a kid come from Mexico, it was a total one-on-one. -on -one. And then I had a kid come from Finland. Uh, that was a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, who else did I have the one-on-one? -on -one? I think I even had a kid come from Japan that was a one-on-one, -on -one just because uh, I had to cut the classes down because they couldn't stay in the States that long. Gotcha, yeah. So we, you know, double up on, on chapters to get through it all. Uh, how, how long have you been doing um, the training? Uh, since about 2012, I think I started it. Okay. So, all right. And what... What's some of the fruits of that? What, what, what's, what have you seen some of the people that have come through you and go on to do? That has to, be, uh, has to be some cool things happen there. Yeah, I've had, uh, I got a few students right now <clears throat> that lived here in Las Vegas. Uh, two of them work at Planet Hollywood, Saks Theaters. Um, one of them works at a big studio out in Henderson is really nice. Uh, play. It used to be called Odds On. I think it's called The Hideout now. Um, <clears throat> he works out there. Um, I got a kid that uh, ended up on a cruise ship doing audio. Um, yeah, I mean, they just, you know, end up. And that's the other thing. I asked them, so first of all, where do you want to live? You know, that kind of dictates what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I try to I try to get into their headspace of 
you know, what they really want out of this, you know. How much, so speaking of headspace, um, it's a, it's a place I like to live. Um, what do you teach or talk about from a headspace um, within mixing, whether it's studio, whether it's live, whatever, how much focus is there in the headspace and what's your, what's your advice in that direction? What's there's, there's, you know, there's a lot to this industry that, that revolves around headspace. Uh, okay. So the very first week of classes, and got nothing to do with mixing. It's the psychology of mixing. There you go. You know, it's, you know, <clears throat> the psychology of mixing a superstar or a superstar act. You know, uh, I learned a lot just psychology wise from mixing groups like Earth, Wind and Fire or uh, uh, Anita Baker or, you know, because <clears throat> everybody has their own, you know, they're people too. You know, and, and they live the way they live or and do what they do. So you, you almost got to come and become a psychiatrist and a mind reader to, to, to deal with those kind of people, you know. So, yeah, that's the first thing we even talk about is this, the psychology of mixing a superstar act. You're not just going to walk up, you know, your first gig and, and mix Madonna or, or mix, you know, Beyonce. It's not going to happen, you know. Being an audio-based podcast, we're looking at your fruits of your labor sitting in front of you. No one else gets to see this right now. We'll, we'll, we'll post some pictures and a, and a link to your Mix Online uh, article. But I think your students will immediately take note just from your setting that you're in. You've really successfully built a great studio and worked with some great acts. So that integrity has followed you to here. So it, it that that's an SSLT console. What is what is that in front of you? Yeah, it's the SSL system T, which most people don't even know what it is because on the SSL website it's labeled as a broadcast console. And you know, most people are either the recording console, the duality, or the live, you know, L 200s and 550s and whatnot. Um, the reason why I got this console. I used to have a need for a long time, a need Genesis. And then I got into mixing in Dolby Atmos in the studio. And the need turned into a boat anchor because it was all <laughs> analog. And you had the, you, you needed a Dante front end and back end to go in and out of uh, the Dolby renderer. So, so that's, um, that's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about this Atmos and immersive stuff that you're working on too. Okay. All right. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's why I ended up with the system T because it's one of the very few consoles that has a 714 mix bus. And that's the minimum that you uh, need to do Dolby Atmos or to start in Dolby Atmos. Are you seeing more and more of that? Or do you think it's kind of a specialty still? Uh, it's, I won't even say it's the future. It's now. If you go, uh, on Tidal, Amazon Music, Apple Music, they all have special sections that they're streaming uh, Dolby Atmos. What are your thoughts on it in live applications, right? Because like you said, you know, you're mixing in 714 minimum, right, for yeah. Atmos. So how, what are your thoughts on it live? Uh, that's where it's going. Uh, Dolby has already... Uh, 
I don't know if you're familiar with Park MGM here in Vegas, you know, yep. big theater, 6,000 seat theater. Uh, they kind of took over the naming rights and turned it into Dolby Live. They have a, a Adobe Atmos live rig in there. I think it's on L acoustic speakers. Um, and I'm not sure what console they're using. They haven't actually used it yet. Nobody signed on to use it, you know, uh, but uh, it's there now. They just put it in there. And my studio is twofold. Now, I can mix records and, and music, you know, music and, and film, but I also have it set up where I can do pre-mixes for live. Because I'm all about the Dolby Live thing myself. Uh, I know you see these LED screens, you know, in the background. I'm working on a totally immersive Dolby Live uh, project. Very cool. Yeah, I I think someone in our Facebook and Chris had sent it to our group text that said we need to think where the studio is now we as live engineers are kind of years behind that and i'm hoping within a, a that podcasts like this and articles and immersive venues like the the park in um las vegas will bring everybody to an even playing field because we're starting to talk to more and more engineers that are using a studio or a broadcast approach to their mix. And this would help them drop into where an Atmos or any kind of immersive audio would start. It's, it's not about the volume. It's about the experience. And um, I think it's super interesting that you're working on that now too and saying that it is now because i think a lot of people are definitely not there yet right i mean i think it depends on kind of your background and perspective right because now you're kind of in a world where you have a whole generation that's never mixed on analog right you yeah. have a whole group of us that we didn't start there we started digital and right. so and i include myself in that right and you know, even not in an immersive venue, but you have these touring system or immersive systems like uh, Elisa that Elacoustics has come out mm -hmm. with, and you yeah. have Soundscape, and you're kind of switching to like an object-based mixing approach. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know you do it in studio, but like as someone who's been a live front of house engineer, do you think there's some sort of mental shift that's going to have to happen to be able to pull that off? And do you think that people are going to start making content for live shows specifically into something like a 714 system where that's where your content's going and you're not mixing in stereo and you're not mixing right, just left, right anymore. You know, how do you start to wrap your head around it? Well, the, um, for live, it's kind of interesting because if you're in, it's got to be a, 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 a fixed insult you're never gonna be able to really tour with Dolby Atmos. You know, uh, it's just too much to set up. A lot of rooms aren't conducive to it. You know, if you try to set up Dolby Atmos on tour, you know, it'd take a day just in rigging. That's not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. um, so like here in town, there's a couple rooms that are doing it. Like I said, Park MGM just installed it. Nobody's used it. Um, House of Blues has a Dolby Atmos rig in it that Santana uses from time to time, not in every show. Um, Interesting. 
So the whole live thing is it, more so going to be the fixed installs. Like I, I mixed in a room uh, in New York. I forget the name of this place. Sony Sony Hall, uh, which is the new BB Kings. Uh, they had a, a immersive uh, mix set up in there. So, you know, that part is still catching on as far as the live thing, because it, it's nothing that you really can tour with. Um, and then you got to be, you know, you got to think about it, you know, where are you going to play stuff? You can't have the kick drum swirling around the room. That's just, <laughs> that's not going to work. Um, so you kind of got to, some things got to stay at home. You know, you got to have a solid kick, snare, hat, and bass. You know, now specialty sounds, you know, uh, then you can move those around the room. And Dolby is, uh, they have a uh, a special, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but they, they do have a special uh, uh, panner for live. They don't sell it. You know, it's, you know, you have to be on the, on the inside to even get to use the thing. I haven't even used it. <laughs> Um, I haven't had a chance to use it. I know about it though. Um, so they do have, but they do have a special panner that can hook up to any live console and move things around. But you have, uh, again, here's the other problem. You know, the, the average act doing a one-off is not enough time to use that stuff. Mm -hmm. You, uh, that's more of a touring thing or, or res like I said, a residency thing. And uh, you need time to program all of that stuff to move around. It just doesn't happen quickly. Yeah. I think there would be, have to be some pretty high-powered acts to do like specialty events for it too. Like if they were doing a tour, it would be like, oh, Friday and Saturday with A-listers doing a special performance in immersive audio. And you'd have to sell it like that to the people that were into it. I, I'd like to see the difference between a normal say arena crowd compared mm -hmm. to someone who would spend money on an immersive audio thing and uh, an artist that would be willing to spend that money to have mm -hmm. that special event to happen, you know, and that that's what we witnessed it as well was going from these big ML boxes to the small line arrays or to, to smaller things. So to save money and cut back on costs and time and energy, setting up one of those like you said wouldn't be a touring thing it would be a special event or a venue specific thing i think i think a listers kind of get a now that we have that on the platforms to listen to at home i think it would be cool to have an a lister event tour where it is like a a special engagement for people to listen because it'll be definitely different for people right and that's what i think dolby's after with the whole park mgm thing you know, because it's, you know, people like Bruno coming in there and uh, what's the, it's a rock and roll act that plays there that's on the rotating roster. Um, Aerosmith, you know, groups like that. And, and it, it needs to be a group that has interesting music, you know, the Genesis and the Journeys, the, you know, the Earth, Wind and Fires, you know, uh, somebody like uh, uh, a ballad singer, you're not going to get nothing out of it because they don't have anything that you can really move around. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. a, like a, Adele, you're probably not going to bring much from an Atmos standpoint. to an Adele show. I no shade yeah. on Adele. It's just like, right. you know, it's, it's her. The gold is there. There's, right. no, there's no need to move that gold around. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So 
as if you haven't already mixed every artist uh, and done studio that learning. I've ever wanted to mix. Right. Yeah, um, <laughs> you you've also done um, some uh, system engineering and tuning, right? So you you mentioned mm-hmm. to us. Yeah, uh, you tuned Yankee Stadium. You've done stuff for the Astros Stadium. So talk about talk about some of that work and how was that with the departure or just a growth from where you've been or how yeah. how, how did that come into play? That was kind of uh, unique. How I even fell into that. Uh, it's a company uh, that was doing it, and again, somebody fell out, <laughs> and it just happened to be the main person that fell out, and. <laughs> <laughs> And the company, they, 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 I met one of the guys a long time ago and he knew I'd mixed all of these acts and I, you know, mixed arenas and stadiums. And he said, Rick, man, I, I need somebody to come with me. And, and, and the first thing we did was Astros. And, uh, you know, I, we need to tune this up. I said, okay, that's easy. And here's the, and, and when I say that's easy, it was easy because it's all about the announce, Mike. And the announcer is behind glass. And he's way away from the speaker system. <laughs> they had, you know, five or 600 speakers. But I didn't have to worry about feedback. Right. <laughs> right? All I had to do was go in there, tune the boxes. And they were, they're in zones, right? So <clears throat> they had certain boxes that were hitting right at, uh, on field level. And then as you walked up the, up the steps, uh, they had other boxes that kicked in. And as you got to other levels, you know, it was other boxes in those zones. All I had to do was make it all blend together. I was like, this is simple. <laughs> I just had to do a whole lot of walking, you know, around to make sure that all the zones were, were uh, uh, you know, correct. But that, that was an easy gig. You know, I didn't have to worry about no feedback. Was it rewarding? Do you like baseball? Yeah. Actually, it's funny. I, uh, before I got into music, I wanted to play baseball pro. There it is. And, that and you're, you're, that an East, you're an East Coast kid, so you might have been a Yankees fan, maybe. <laughs> well, I grew up in Cincinnati. I was a Reds fan. Ooh. I'm not even wearing my Cardinals hat tonight. Hang on, I got one. <laughs> Go Braves. Yeah. I gotta say it. Go Braves. Go Atlanta. All right. So do you do you miss uh from a live standpoint, do you miss Animal? <laughs> So I guess, I'm sorry. Uh, he put on the same. <laughs> my head you gotta represent. Oh. You gotta pen and everything. This guy, he's got so much shit laying around. Um, <laughs> hey, they have a whole merch section over there, buddy. Calm down. Uh, <laughs> world champions. Too. Oh my gosh, yeah. uh, Rick, do you um, do you from a live standpoint? Do you miss analog? Uh, well, I tell you what, I don't miss charting consoles. <laughs> <laughs> he just said it, the Neve was a boat anchor. There's people at home right now crying into their hands. I know, I'm saying from a live what? standpoint, right? I mean, like, there's this, like, Toby Francis and all these people, like, are just embracing and they're doing a hybrid approach of doing digital and analog. But I mean, you know, uh, there's still there's a, a resurgence like vinyl and all this other, you know, right. stuff that's coming back. I'm just, just curious. I mean, sometimes. Yeah, I- it's fun to swim in the nostalgia, but some t- people are like, you know what? No, like, I don't miss it. I'm good. You know what I miss? You know, if I could have the console of my dreams, I would have a Paragon. Oof. Wait, one or two? Uh, either. Okay. They both were cool. They, they both, you know, had the issues with the Molex connectors falling off. Yep. 
I had a, a one smoke on me just before a show. I went up in flames. Luckily, I had a, a spare. Um, if I could have a Paragon that had automation on it and recall, there you go. I'd be on that every day. Yep. That was like mixing on a knee live. The, the trick with the Paragon 2, at least, was with the channel would freak out. You take the head app, you mute the channel, you just crank on the head app a couple of times and bring back the channel back to life. So, right. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't John McBride still tour the Paragon for Martina? So. There's a couple of them out there still. But oh, Wayne, yeah. Wayne Pauly uses a Paragon when he can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'd do a metal band on an XL4. If I could do, I'd do, mm. I'd do an XL4. Or Harrison. Now, that was another great sounding console. You know, when the XL8 came out, <clears throat> they actually invited me over there to play with it before they put it out. And I was like, man, this thing is like an XL4 on steroids. Uh -huh. You know? Yep. They, they did kind of change the whole digital thing, but those preamps, man, they sounded so good. From from mixing on like a PM1 and the D1s and the D5s at the time by Digico, right. the the pre's on that Midas just sung. I mean, it sounded right. like a heritage to me. It was like heritage slash XL4 all day. Yep. Loved it. All right. So I've got to ask, you talk about analog. You've clearly done this whole sound thing for a while. Uh, <laughs> think we established that this far right so what do you wish you knew when you first started mm, i guess uh wish i knew how the business part of it worked better back then you know um what part that, that feels very broad given your background uh the whole money thing just and, I tell you, so the music business is probably like no other when it comes to the business, because most of the time there is no rules to this game. Um, everybody plays it different. You just got to be able to figure it out real fast how they're going to play the game and either get on board or, or, or walk away. You know, that's the, that's the biggest thing I wish I could have learned faster uh, was, you know, how to tell how people were going to play that game you know the the money trick has always been a thing too and it, it's come up in social media discussions a lot because there's there's not it's not like any other job there's not a standard thing there's not a rate that is the standard thing yet you know it's not like oh you're an entrance level guy uh you're you're an a-list guy and and playing the game in between um Turn around, Kyle. <laughs> I know. I see her. She, <laughs> she, she makes a visit every every podcast. But mm -hmm. um, playing playing the thing between tours, like like you said, no one ever taught us how to manage money. And then taxes. Um, right. I remember the first time we had team tours uh, do our accounting for the tour, and I got my my ten ninety nine or my W two or whatever at the end of the tour, and I was taxed in like forty eight states. And I could, and, and at the time I wasn't LLC, so I could only claim three of them personally. So mm -hmm. you had to pick the top three that took the most money and that's what you got. And, right. and you're right. There isn't like a, an entertainment business class about your, your personal accounting and right. per diems and tracking. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Money in the entertainment business is odd. 
And didn't at one point, if you got more than $32 or $35, if you got more than that in per diem, they could tax it or something like that? Yep. Because yeah. every state or city had a different tax base or a per diem base for what it is. Like New York was like $45, but mm-hmm. Des Moines, Iowa was like $14. Hmm. Um, but they weren't judging it off your entertainment thing, which is like the standard PD rate for independent contractor, whatever you did. You know, mm-hmm. you could have shoveled poo, same like the same dude that shoveled poo and the same cat that was engineering the show got the same PD. Right. It's just odd. No one really talks about that. We should do an episode. We kind of did with that money episode a long, long time ago. Yeah, we, yeah. we I actually got hit up on on LinkedIn or whatever saying, "Hey, can you guys do an episode about taxes and stuff like that?" So we got to I, I I'm not an authority, so I need to find someone else who can come on here and 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 spew information. So maybe we can get that together. So <laughs> I can I can find a bunch of people that want to complain about it. Rick, well, yeah, you can come that, back on and complain gonna, about it. That's not going to help anybody. <laughs> I know, but I mean there's definitely some tips and stuff like that I've heard over the years. Uh Dan's really great about it. Dan's the one who I guess um I think it was him who was like got the spreadsheet that he like tracks all of his per diem and like does whenever he gets his like um master tour or whatever like goes mm-hmm. through and like puts it all in and like keeps track of everything like there's some people that have it figured out we just gotta go find them right yeah, the average cat ain't doing that you know they're trying to make it from gig to gig i <laughs> <laughs> mean their pds in vegas when they get there i don't yeah, know how right. many times i did that <laughs> like kyle do the food thing you know, the whole okay. uh, how you charge is, is I tell people, you got to kind of base it on the artists that you're dealing with. You know, if they're A-list artists, then you can charge A-list prices, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're C artists, then you're charging C-list prices. It, it, uh, we, we joked, um, this was years ago, but I remember um, the front of house of Monica guy was out, we were joking, like when Pro Tools came out, right, and then Pro Tools hd came out like you know what i wonder can we just say we mix in hd and charge more like yeah, we're, we're hd mixers right <laughs> HD was charged more <laughs> hey so i i lived in vegas for a short time it felt like forever i think it was like eight years but if we were coming to visit vegas what's your what's your favorite food spot right now and i'll tell you mine um, my favorite food spot is Joe's Steakhouse in Caesars in the forum shops. See, I don't go to the strip unless you're paying me. So, <laughs> well, I, and I, I live 15, 20 minutes from the strip, but the only yeah. time I go down there is like if friends are in town or, or we want to go to Joe's Steakhouse, which I don't even get steak there. I get the sea bass. So you know? what, what's your favorite local spot, like the local secret spot that you go to? Hmm. Well, around my house, I got all the standard, you know, P.F. Chang's, Cheesecake Factory, those type of spots. Oh, there is a new fish spot. Uh, it's called California Fish Grill in Las Vegas. <laughs> nice. Really good. It's right up the street from me. I love Zen Curry down on Spring Mountain. It, it's just Japanese curry. It's rice and a thing with the curry on it that stuff is addictive it's crazy and i just looked it up because i was talking to daniel keller um about vegas and it bocce burger used to be in summerlin one in summerlin and then one in um down by the airport and it's closed now but they used to have oxtail chili cheese fries with an asian twist (laughs) it was insane 
And those were my two local spots. Now, my wife would love the chili cheese fries thing. You know, she's a West Coast girl. Yeah, West Coaster. I get into the, the chili cheese fries. <laughs> Although I did do the chili hamburgers, you know, from uh, Fat Burgers. I'm, I love them. Fat Burgers is good. Like, people sleep on that, I think. If you're on the West Coast, go to Fat Burger. Like, everyone's like, oh, In N Out. I'm like, no way. I'd rather go to Fat Burger yeah. or In N Out. Fight me. That's all I'm saying. If you want to fight, you can email me at Kyle. It's <laughs> going to be round two of hate mail. Careful. I know that is going to be hate mail. Rick, man, you were a pleasure to hang out with. Oh, crap. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. So, Rick, if you could define your legacy or how you'd want to be known, how would you define that? Oh, my God. <laughs> I never thought about that one. Hopefully, I just, you know, people can say I, I gave back and you know, tried to help and, uh, you know, help the, 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 the new kids come on and, and, you know, be all that they can be, you know, I think that's it. That's good. That's good. So there, if, if there was, if there's one piece of advice that you could impart on someone, what would it be? Mixing advice, learn your frequencies. Uh, Dealing with other people advice, be patient. Uh, study. I'm, I'm always learning. You know, try different things uh, in the studio and live. You, have, you yeah, can always yeah, learn from somebody. Yeah. You haven't figured it out by now? <laughs> it, from yeah. where I'm looking at, it looks like he's got to figure it out. I got this. No, I, I love that. I, you know, I was thinking about that too. It's like, man, you know, um, it, it's, I love that. I mean, if people haven't learned by now that like you never stop learning it, like you just said here, you, you know, you've been, you know, touring since the early eighties, uh, you know, and have had an, an immensely successful career and yet you're, you're still pursuing, uh, pursuing the, or acknowledging that you still have things to learn. Oh yeah. I pick up things, you know, I, you, at a certain point, you get to the, the space of you can sit back and watch somebody sure. you know, doing, doing that thing. And you'd be like, hmm, OK, that's interesting. Maybe I can use that, with, you know, in my thing, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do that all the time. Love it. Man, you've always been a pleasure to hang out with. And I'm so glad that we got to get you on the show because um I was I was scrolling through LinkedIn and I saw the thing for Master Mix and the desk and your setup there in Las Vegas and I'm gonna go ahead and admit it I'll admit it on the podcast I miss Vegas a little bit a little bit <laughs> just a little um, but man I got to do Bell Biv DeVoe with you I got to see <laughs> you mix a few other shows so I am completely blessed and honored and thank you for being on the show really appreciate it. Man, thank you for having me. It's good to reconnect, you know. I lost touch. Yeah, man. It happens. We always reconnect though. Is it's it's a good way to catch up. Like uh, a lot of our guests have, have been like that. And uh it's it's all starting all over again. So check out Master Mix. Um, we'll put some links in the comments. Uh that was a good episode. I had fun. Thank See you, you next yeah. time.
Yeah. It's funny to me now, but it wasn't funny then. So this is my Prince story. So I had just come off a tour with the uh, Destiny's Child, Beyonce. We, we were over in Europe. I had just got home and what's his name that worked for Claire for years? He was a, uh, he actually worked for Shoko and then he came to Claire. Looked like Santa Claus. Um, ML. ML. ML Procise. One of my mentors. So, yeah. So ML calls me and he says, Rick, you want to do prints? Well, hell yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to do prints since I was with Earth, Wind & Fire in the 90s. And to back up just a little bit, the LD that was with Earth, Wind & Fire was on retainer by Prince. And he said, Rick, you don't want that gig. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't want that gig. And that back then, he was trying to mix himself from the center of the stage. You know, he had a console up there in the middle of the stage, and he was trying to mix front of house and arenas, and it wasn't working, and people were walking out. So anyway... He said, send me your resume. So I sent, sent him the resume. He It was fax machine still. It faxed it up to Paisley and Prince just happened to be standing there. And um, so he saw it and he said, get him up here now. So the next day I was on the you know, first thing smoking in Minneapolis. I get there early in the morning. Now I had some friends that uh, were in the you know crew. <clears throat> One of them was a programmer. And they knew I was coming. They just didn't know when I was coming over to the building. And he happened to come in super early that day. And they, they called me over there. It was about 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so I met him, and he has his breakfast meal inside of Paisley. I met him there. We're talking, and he seemed super cool, right? You know, musician cool, right? Not, not superstar cool, right? And uh, he says, so I see you that mixed a lot of people. I know Earth, Wind & Fire had to be your favorite act. I said, yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. And uh, and then I said, and this was I should have I should have told this story because this is what you never do. I made the mistake of saying, you know, I just you know was sitting in on this gig with this new little kid, D'Angelo. Now I didn't even like D'Angelo. I didn't like the records, but when I went and sat in for somebody and heard the band, the band playing those records was totally different than what he printed on the record. Totally different. He had three-piece horn section, and, and the arrangements was killing. Questlove was the drummer. Yep. Uh, Anthony Hamilton was one of the background singers. Damn. Um, the band was killing. It was like Earth, Wind & Fire on stage, right? And I, and I said to Prince, I said, you know, I just met this little kid, man. This band was really killing. And, and, uh, and as soon as I said D'Angelo, he was like, you know, why don't you go on back to the rehearsal hall? I'll come back there and finish talking to you. Now they were in rehearsal. Get ready to go out on tour. And uh, so I went back to the, the rehearsal hall, sat there for about 15 minutes, and he called back there. Tell him to go on back to the hotel. I'll call him at the hotel. <laughs> you know what comes next. <laughs> now, 20 minutes later, the, the, the travel agent called me, Isle or Window. I'm like, what the hell did I do? You know, I never mixed a note. Got fired. Never mixed a note. <laughs> Taught me a valuable lesson. Never tell another artist who you like or don't like. Never do it. Uh, found out later that D'Angelo and Prince had never met. And like I said, I did the European run. Then they came back to the States and they did the States run. And, the, you know, the regular guy came back. Well, when they got to Minneapolis, they finally got a chance to meet. 
Questlove introduced it to. And they tried to have a jam session at Paisley and something happened and they fell out and Prince hated him. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was unaware of all of this because it's two or three months later. Never tell another artist who you like. That's awesome. Connected. <laughs> you know, got Never fired. Know. Never even turned the console on. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Yeah.